Hello, welcome to this episode of the Football Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Jacobs. Whew, what a week. I'm still sleeping from most of the wild card games. There were two games that were close including my 49ers. Thank you very much. Um, And four that were just absolute snoozers. I mean, I think the problem is, so so during the season, you know, there's like the early slate will have, you know, eight, nine games all at the same time. So if something's a blowout, you can just divert your attention to a game that's closer, even if it was a matchup you weren't that interested in. And the later game still will have three or four. But when it's the, now it's the playoff, so it's the only game. And so if it's bad, it's like, feels like it takes 17 hours. But good riddance to the wild card round. And I, I'm so excited about today's show. Well, I guess excited isn't the right word. I'm kind of sad in, in a sense and frustrated, uh, but I'm excited about uh, delving into the topic um, of the lack of black head coaches. I'm not excited, obviously, about the lack of black head coaches, but we have one, Mike Tomlin, one. Never had a losing season. Brian Flores was gone after going eight and one to close out the season. David Coley, who inherited the worst roster in the most dysfunctional organization, one and done, gone. So now we are just down to Mike Tomlin. Lots of candidates are interviewing and we'll see how it goes. Uh, But I'm going to break this all down. Well, actually, I'm going to hand the mic over uh, to Shalise Manza-Young. She's a columnist at Yahoo Sports who's written extensively on this issue. Uh, She is a a black woman, a mother, a, I don't know what being a mother has to do with it other than I, I love having fellow moms on the podcast, but she has a lot of very poignant thoughts about where we're at, why we're here, whether or not it's going to get better. Um, it's obviously not the most enjoyable topic, but but it's important. With that being said, a quick reminder, my name is Melissa Jacobs. I'm the managing editor of The Football Girl. I'm also a contributor to The Guardian, where I had quite a week. I'll get to that in a second. And uh, also a contributor to BBC. Yeah, so a few quick thoughts uh, before we bring on Shalise. So I I had a column come out on Tuesday. Um, it was assigned to me uh, from my editor at The Guardian, and it made sense, right? A retrospective on Ben Roethlisberger. This was, you know, contingent on the Steelers losing to the Chiefs, which I don't for, for one quarter, it was in question, and then... It very much wasn't. Um, but but the retrospective, which had been missing in, in most places, was the complete picture of Roethlisberger, not just the stats, not just all the things that made him a great quarterback, the pump fakes, the 
inability to to be tackled or to tackle him uh you know extending plays all all the things but i also included the you know alleged sexual assaults both of them and people didn't like that very much well some people did like most art columns i write like this i got you know you get half of good job thanks for saying that but a lot of a lot of people don't like to hear about their athletes flaws they just want to think of their athletes for what they do on the field what they do on the court what they do in stadiums and not think about any of the other stuff and we've gone through that you know we've gone through this with with Kobe, rest in peace. We've gone through that. We've gone through this with other NFL players, um, but it is part of his story and part of his legacy. And I woke up. So when I write for the Guardian, they're first of all they they publish things kind of based on London time, and I'm in California. So the London people have read. The London people are very nice, by the way. Even if they disagree with something I write, they're very like classy and sometimes humorous about it. The New York people or the East Coast people, including Pittsburgh, which is on East Coast time, they're they're all getting this before I'm even up. So I wake up and I'm just like litany of. You know, some positives, a lot of negative. And when I say negative, I mean C word and B word and F word and all the words, um, which is a little jarring to wake up to. You're like trying to get your kids ready for school or I am. And that's like its own struggle. And then you're just having people, you know, tear you down. You know, people are ripping on, you know, my parts of my career or whatever. I don't even know. Um but yeah, it's, it's, it, it happens. Like I write about this kind of stuff, but it, it, you know, it, it weighs on you after a while. And then the, the big thing that happened was somebody hacked my Twitter account and took it over and deleted my posts on Roethlisberger. I'm not going to say that it was a Steelers fan or, uh, but you know, then they taunted me on a different account that I was tweeting from saying something like, you know, you write this, this is what you deserve or something. So you, it, it was just a very disturbing and you just feel kind of violated, like somebody robbed your house or something. I know Twitter is just a social media account. It's not that big of a deal in the context of life. I don't really know what the solution is because you know, I get assigned these types of stories. I like writing these types of stories, quite frankly. I like having a little platform and, and using it to spew the truth or rem- remind people. I also, you know, like to say very positive things, of course, as as well, um, or just point out issues that I that people should be aware of, much like we're about to do in the this conversation that maybe aren't at the forefront. Um But it's always, you know, I'm the one that's called upon to write about sexual assault things. You know, Shalise, who's black, is called upon to write about, you know, racial issues. And like it, we should be like for sure, because we have, you know, a different perspective. But like there should also be men writing about this stuff and we should think about like normalizing this type of content. That's really my biggest takeaway. Not to say that, you know, 
the men aren't going to be the subject of harassment because they will too. But it's, I feel like it, it's, it's easier for these trolls and harassers to come after people like me when it's like always the woman in the newsroom, it's always the woman being assigned this. So it just kind of feeds into their, you know, inherent misogyny. So, all right, moving on. Um, no NFL players had COVID uh, the last two weeks. Like every NFL player had COVID. Maybe they've all had it, so we're good. But every every NFL player had COVID, like the three weeks leading up to the playoffs. And the playoffs came and no, no players had COVID. So... Good job. I'm sure there's lots of testing going on right now. Um, Also, just a quick word on the 49ers win over the Cowboys. That last call, I mean, let me be the millionth person to say, it was total garbage. Like, it was such a bad play call um, for so many reasons. Because, first of all, like... You, you should have looked for like a quick out pass or something like like it, the, the percentage of things that like had to happen for that to be executed properly, including relying on the official to get there so you could hand him the ball, even though he was hustling, by the way. But like that had to happen. You had to, you know, Dak had to not slip. Like there's so many things that that. uh had to, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand the play call. And, you know, and now Kellen Moore, who apparently could drew up that play is, is getting all these head coaching um, interviews, which I don't get either. I feel like he's honestly to have that receiving core and that quarterback who I still believe in um, and that, running back who I know has been injured, but dad, that offense. And it's just, it's kind of boring for the talent that you have there. So I just, I don't know. I I think it's just same old Cowboys. Mike McCarthy inspires no confidence. And I would say that I, I feel bad for the Cowboys, but I don't because I'm a Niners fan and I'm very happy right now. And I love Deba Samuel. I, I, I just love him. Like, I feel like, I want to get like a poster of Diva Samuel and just like put it in my house. <laughs> That's weird. I know. But it, that guy, I mean, that guy is freaking amazing. And I love what Kyle Shanahan's doing with him. So, okay. I guess some quick predictions. I don't know. I'll just, I'll just kind of, I'm just going to go quick through here. Cause I want to get, you, I want to get to this uh, meteor conversation, but I'm all about the Bengals. I love I love the Bengals. I, you know, I don't have like full faith in the Titans um, in the playoffs. I don't know why not. Like I should. But, um, you know, with, with Derrick Henry coming back, I mean, it's if he's not, I don't know how they're going to acclimate him back in. And there might be like questions about his usage. I don't know. I mean, they could totally dominate as well. But I just love what the Bengals are doing offensively. I mean, it's just the chemistry that Joe Burrow has, Um, which by the way, we're going to talk a little bit with Shalise about that because she also wrote about the Bengals, uh, but mostly about the other stuff. Um, So I'll, I'll go, I'll go with the Bengals and yes, I'm, I'm picking the underdog, both underdogs on Saturday. Let's go Niners. I mean, it's the Niners against Aaron Rodgers in the playoffs. Just going to go, 
going to go with the flow. Going to go with what I know. And that's that the Niners will prevail. I think like Rodgers, I remember um, I was at the NFC Championship game when Raheem Moster ran for like 800 yards. But I, I still feel like, I don't know, I, Rogers claims that he's not bitter about the 2005 draft, especially given that that was, what, 17 years ago? Oh, my God. Um, but I feel like he is. Like, I feel like every time he plays the Niners in the playoffs, he's just like mad and, and it gets like in his head. And he there's, I don't know. I don't know Aaron Rodgers. Not that I knew him before, but I don't know what goes on in that man's head. But in any event, 49ers. And as much as I want, I don't know, as much as I want the Rams to win, because that would mean the 49ers would host um, a home, the home NFC championship in LA at SoFi, which would be a home game for the Niners, essentially. I'm not, I'm not betting against the Bucks, even with the lack of, of, receiving option not bidding against Tom Brady um so Bucks and then Chiefs Bills I considered the game of the week I'll just go with the Chiefs because they're home but like I feel like that could be a tie and go into overtime and be like the greatest game ever now watch it be a blowout so just just felt like I had to drop some predictions here but now without further ado um I wish I had some predictions on the in the head coaching ranks that guys like Raheem Morris and Todd Bowles and Brian Flores and Jim Caldwell and people like that were in line for jobs. But given recent history, I can't say that. So to talk about this issue in much more depth, let me get you right to my conversation with Shalise Manza-Young. I am such a fan of your work, Shalise. I'm so excited to chat with you. You know, one of these days I'll actually have to have you on to talk about happier subjects like the Bengals win you wrote about. Uh, That's actually, that's such a fun team, isn't it? I love the Bengals. Um, I was on the Yahoo NFL podcast with my colleague Charles Robinson Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and I chose the Bengals and Chiefs as my picks for the AFC title game, oh. just because they are, they're, they're <laughs> really, I like them. You know, I love Joe Burrow um, for a lot of reasons, you know, obviously phenomenal player, but you know how he really seems to like navigate the locker room really well. You know, yeah. you see those, that meme of like president Obama and how he like shakes the hand of white people, but then he daps up black people and stuff like that. And I feel like that's Joe Burrow, you know, like he, he can dap up his black teammates, but then he's like shaking hands and and hanging out with his white teammates on, on their level. Like, I think he's just very good at meeting people where they are. I I don't know him at all, but it's just the vibe that I get from him. Um, And he just seems like unflappable, you know, he really, and I've seen people compare him, to Joe Montana in that way, um, and a little bit Tom Brady, which, holy crap, to be a second-year NFL quarterback and, and potentially hear that ab- said about yourself. Um, but, yeah, he just – he seems great. It's, it's great to see um, Chase have a phenomenal season, you know, early on. Like, in training camp, people were trying to write him off. Right. Because um, he said something about the, the ball doesn't have lines on it or something like that. And he, he did have a rough preseason, and people are already trying to write him off. And it's like, you know what? I kind of love an underdog. And the other thing, you know, 
I think I wrote about this as well is I grew up in New England. And so I have seen a team that was always an also ran become mm-hmm. the big team. So I know it can happen, you know, and why shouldn't it happen for Cincinnati fans and, and for the Bengals? You know, if, if they really found a true number one quarterback um, and Zach Taylor, you know, if he's navigating how to be a, a good head coach and stuff like that, it can happen. You know, it, you, you, it feels like they're cursed or it feels like you're going to just be an also ran forever, but you can, your team's fortunes can change and that's what it takes, you know? So maybe this is the start of it. Right. Right. I love the whole like burrow. I mean, they don't, I mean, they care about the history, but they don't really because they're so young. And so it just feels so fresh and, and, and new over there. Uh, but you just you just mentioned head coaches. So, you know, obviously the the, the main reason I, I wanted to, to chat with you was to kind of get your insight into the, you know, I guess not not so fun topic of the NFL's hiring practices when it comes to, to black head coaches. So Shelly says, you know, as you well know, the NFL at the moment has exactly one black head coach, Mike Tomlin, 32 teams, mm-hmm. one black head coach, you know, just, just how does hearing that in its most simplest form make you feel? Oh, it, it an, annoys the crap out of me. Um, and it also kind of saddens me in a way, you know, like I, I've the big, the large majority of my career as an NFL writer when I was around a team, it was around one team. It was around the New England Patriots. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they had a couple of black assistants. And right after I left is when Brian Flores's ascension began with them as like the de facto defensive coordinator. Uh, and obviously we know he went on to become a head coach. And it's, it's really, it's hard. You know, these men put in just as much time and work just as hard and know the game and understand how to, to teach, right? At the end of the day, coaching is teaching and teaching has no color. You know, being a good teacher is about delivering concepts to people in ways that they can understand and maximizing somebody's potential. That's what teaching, that's what coaching is. I coach as well. I coach uh, track teams. Um, and, And that's what it is. And all kids, you know, all of my kids have different needs. Like I've had to, you know, you might have to adjust how you deliver the message for certain kids, but at the end of the day, when they get it, it's an amazing thing. And that has no color. It even has no gender. You know, we saw last week with Rachel Balkovec becoming um, a minor league manager in the Yankees organization and the people who are critical of that. It's, it's just teaching. It's, it's all teaching. And to say that for NFL owners and, and GMs to not come out and say, but imply that black men can't teach is crazy. And it's, it's just, and the, the hardest part to be completely honest is I don't see it changing. I have very little hope that it's going to change. Despite like all the tweaks they keep doing to the Rooney rule and all this stuff. Those are insulting. Yeah. Those are insulting. You know, as a, as somebody who, (laughs) as a black woman who covered the NFL for the Boston Globe, like I went from the Providence Journal to the Boston Globe. When I was hired by the Globe, I was hired to do the exact same job I had been doing in Providence, but at a bigger paper. And yet still, I was denigrated as nothing but an affirmative action hire. As if 
one of the most well-known sports sections in the country was just going to hand a black woman <laughs> its most visible beat for, 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 for the reasons of checking a box. You know, if they wanted a, a black woman on staff, they could have just hired me and I could have covered, you know, whatever. I could have been the number two person on the Patriots beat or I could have been, you know, a GA reporter. No, I had been doing what I had been doing. I had established myself, but still I was dismissed. And when you come up with these rules, like the Rooney rule, and you keep trying to tweak it, it's a, it's a similar thing. Because if a black man, hopefully multiple black men get hired in this cycle, but when black men get hired, now it's almost like, well, did you hire me because you know I'm the right person for the job? Or did you hire me because, you know, there's a third round pick in it somewhere? Or, you know, it's just, I know other teams get the third round pick, but it's just all like, it's really insulting. And it, it almost is regressive, not progressive. And why are we still at a point where we're having this discussion. Like, how do you not understand why a black man couldn't possibly be the right man for the job, right? You've seen this before. I know you've seen it before mm -hmm. that people always make this argument. Well, why don't we just hire the best person for the job? Why are you automatically assuming it can't be a black man? Right. Why is that your assumption? Right, right. They've played the game. They've been raised in the game. I wrote something recently about um, uh, uh, related to the Rooney rule. And of the 17 black, um, of the 17 black coordinators for the 2021 season, 14 of them had played at the D1 level or higher, which is over 70%. Meanwhile, only about 52% of the white coordinators had played D1 football or at a higher level. And I can, I can make the argument that playing at that high of a level and being exposed to that many different coaches probably makes you a better coach. But if that's the standard, it should be the standard for everybody, not just the standard for the black coaches. Why yeah. do they have to be so steeped in the game and before you even give them a chance? Why are they, the data shows they're usually older when they get a first time coordinator job. They're usually older when they get a first time head coaching position. Why is it all of these things? And then... <laughs> You have somebody like David Cully, he gets one shot at 66 years old and is kicked out the door after one year. What, what do, who could have, how many other coaches could have won four games with that roster? <laughs> no, that is, I mean, they should have, I mean, I think you said it in your column, right? They should have won none. I mean, they're talent wise. They should have won zero. Right. Nobody was expecting, nobody was expecting them. And, I, and I'm not saying that, you know, David Culley is God's gift to coaching or anything like that, but he won four games in a situation where on paper, his roster was terrible. His, the, the franchise quarterback wants nothing to do with the franchise for reasons that David Culley had nothing to do with. Yeah. Even if we, you know, we can't separate the, you know, Watson's off-field stuff from the on-field stuff but even before it came out that Deshaun Watson was potentially a serial sexual harasser he wanted nothing to do with the Texans franchise and so you bring David Culley into this situation and he gets four wins out of this team and as I wrote in that column the writing was on the wall from day one that he was probably not going to be there for very long and now 
the Texans are trying to paint it that, well, he didn't want to change his staff. <laughs> but out of the other side of their face, people are saying the reason he won four games was because of his staff. Well, which one was it? If the staff right. was the reason why he won four games, why are you firing him? Because he didn't want to get rid of any of those people on his staff that was supposedly the only reason why they won four games. Like, what are we doing here? Right. You know, what are we what are we doing here? Right. And then on, on the flip side, but unfortunately related, so you have Brian Flores, who was fired after his team, you know, overachieved, I think, and went eight and one to close out the season. I mean, how how was that? How could they justify that? And and you can't, you know, as I as I wrote, it has parallels to the Jim Caldwell situation in Detroit that the the Dolphins have been literally just treading water for almost 20 years. They had, I think they've had three winning seasons during uh, Ross's tenure as owner. Two of them were under Brian Flores, and yet you fired Brian Flores. Lest we all forget, was it the first two games, his first season, they lost by like almost 100 points, and still – they turned it around and there were people who were saying he should have been coach of the year, his first year as head coach, because somehow he got them through that and they didn't fold up shop and they were able to, to salvage something of a season. And yes, he did not make the playoffs, but again, look at the roster he was handed and the fact that he was able to get them to winning seasons. And you're still saying that's not good enough. You know, Jim Caldwell's replacement was Matt Patricia after you told Jim Caldwell that, well, you know, over 500, the only over 500 seasons we've had in years and getting us to the playoffs, that wasn't good enough. Let's replace you with this guy with the pencil behind his ear and he's a rocket scientist. He went 13 and 29. Yeah, he was so disaster. It's so, it's, I, I know I'm rambling. This is just something that it's so maddening when you look at the numbers and when you look at people we trot his name out all the time but Eric Bieniemy, I I don't I I need somebody to explain to me and I and this is how I know there's nothing there except the fact that nobody wants to hire this black man nobody has come out and concretely said it's all been nebulous like oh he doesn't interview that well really you expect me to believe that Dan Campbell, Dan Campbell interviews better than Eric Bieniemy. Dan Campbell on his opening press conference sounded like a buffoon. Yeah. He really did in, in, in a league that cares so much about optics. And, you know, you have to win that opening press conference to convince the fan base. He's talking about biting people's kneecaps and, and all other kinds of foolishness. And you mean to tell me that that man interviewed better than Eric Bieniemy? Yeah. So I, I, I just have a really, really, really hard time believing that that is the case. Yeah. So when when you hear for years that Eric Bieniemy, even though he's clearly so deserving at this point, um, when you hear he didn't interview well, I mean, and you think about why we're here. I don't. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Lise, what does that mm-hmm. what does that say to you? What are the owners when when they're what 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 about him is not interviewing well? I mean, now you don't know what the, how the right. interviews are going, but I'm kind of right you know, and, piecing and this together here. Right. What about him 
is unacceptable to you, you know? And, and I think, I don't know this. Um, I've never spoken to Eric, but it reminds me um, a few years ago, uh, eight years ago now, my husband was looking for uh, a new job. It was time for okay. him to take the next step up the ladder. And he did a, na a national search. He worked in independent schools. And he interviewed at a school in Savannah, Georgia, to be their director of technology. And he thought he did great. The head of school loved him. But some of the people who worked at the school already, who he interviewed with, came up with like two or three really nitpicky things for why they didn't think my husband should be hired there. Like, oh, he wears earrings. My husband was smart enough because this is what black people have to do. My husband didn't wear his earrings to any of the interviews he went on because he knew that he couldn't, he, if he got hired and it seemed like a fit culturally where he could wear his earrings and not be, and he just wears studs. He wears, you know, small diamond studs, right. but he knew I'm not going to wear the earrings because, you know, I don't want, he knew it might give people a reason. And they still tried to use that as a reason. They saw that he had holes in his ears, even though there were no earrings in them. And they tried to hold that as a thing against him. And I just oh. feel like that's probably something that's happening with these black coaches is they're 95% great, but there's all oh, this 5% there's these little things. I'm not sure. So let's just turn to this guy who's 90% of what we want, but we can overlook the other 10% that he's not. But the 5% from this black coach, no, because I can't explain anything else. I, I just can't, you know, that these, these search firms that are all run by, you know, white executives, of course, and all the front offices and in. all the people that, you know, these owners surround themselves with go into the country club. And I don't know how often owners and head coaches go out to country clubs together anyway, but these are the things that you hear all the time about, well, I want to feel comfortable with him. Right. Why? Why? He's not going to babysit your children. You're not hiring to be <sighs> him to be the nanny. You're hiring him to win football games for your multi-billion dollar corporation. It's just like, it's just very hard. It's really, it's very hard. And like I said, I don't, I don't hold out <clears throat> a lot of hope that things are going to change significantly i mean maybe we see three black men hired this go round, so that brings us back to four out of 32 and then what you know do i do i believe that five years from now it's going to be seven out of 32 not really yeah yeah so what um you know you mentioned earlier um, you know, the, the affirmative action, viewing this as a affirmative action hires, and that's going to be the downside, right? Whoever's hired. I mean, hopefully it won't be framed like that, but there is going to be some semblance of that. And, you know, I, I don't, I think Adam Schefter and the, you know, people of his ilk are doing a disservice. I personally think that I don't, I'm wondering what you think when you see him always, you know, the, the, this team interviewed this black candidate, then the teams will put out, you know, their own social media council and they'll like have a picture of the person to show the optics that they're interviewing black, like they're promoting the fact that they're interviewing diverse candidates, but then if they don't make the hire, but, but it's like supposed to be excused or something. Well, the thing that I had the light bulb go on earlier this week, they have to, they have to interview the diverse candidates. That's what the Rooney rule is. You know, they have to interview two 
uh, non-white candidates for the GM and head coaching positions. So, you know, every year the Fritz Pollard Alliance and, and the league internally creates these lists of, oh, here are the candidates that we think are best suited for these roles. And you pick two off of there and you interview them and then you move on. So that's the first thing, you know, they're, they're saying it because that's what's happening, but you have to, the thing that I <laughs> remembered is that they have to interview them. So this is where it comes in that you're almost like distrustful of the process is, are you interviewing these men? Because you really truly think like, oh, I've heard great things. I've done my homework. This guy could be phenomenal whether it's in the front office or whether it says head coach, or are you checking boxes? You know, we had it happen just last year. Urban Meyer was offered the job to be the Jaguars head coach mm -hmm. by Shad Khan in December, mm -hmm. in December. He knew that this job is mine if I want it. And then in early January, Shad Khan goes through the dog and pony show of interviewing Eric Bieniemy, Raheem Morris, and Robert Sala. So yes, those were three viable candidates, but you had no intention of hiring them. And that's more insulting, you know, when people talk about, oh, it's practice, you know, for at least if they interview, it's practice. It's not practice if nobody has any interest in really interviewing with you. Right. You know, that's not, that's not advantageous for them if they're there and, you know, 15, 20 minutes into it, they get the feeling that, oh, I'm just here because, you know, they have to do this and they have to go be able to go back to Roger Goodell and Troy Vincent and say, oh, look, we, we interviewed these guys. You know, the news, the Texans said a few days ago, they interviewed Heinz Ward. <laughs> I, 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 Heinz Ward may someday be a great head Sorry, coach. Heinz, for laughing so much here. <laughs> No, but yes, like you understand, how am I supposed to believe that you are taking it seriously, that you are truly trying to find the best head coach when you're interviewing somebody who is a receiver's coach at a mid-level D1 program? Yeah, yeah, I, that's very, very good point. Does it, does, do you feel that too? Though, like the the promotion of it all, like they have to do it, and then they're promoting that they're doing it, but it doesn't mean that anyone's getting hired, right? And that's what that's what I had to to tell myself is yes, they're promoting this, and they're promoting it because when they this is me being pessimistic when they almost inevitably hire a white coach who has a third of the experience of all these you know of the black men that they interviewed then they can be like, well, we told you that we interviewed them. But if we see changes in hiring and we see, you know, more non-white coaches get chances, that's where I will start to potentially feel more hopeful. But the thing that we have to remember is that you can publicize that you interviewed these coaches, but you have to publicize that you interviewed them because the league is demanding that you interview them. So you know, you can, I can interview people, but if the whole time, you know, they're already saying now with the Raiders that, you know, if Harbaugh wants to come back into the league, that they're just going to, oh, he can go coach the Raiders. Well, why? Just in some ways, I almost feel like 
just get rid of the Rooney rule because it mm. is insulting in a lot of ways to these black men because they go into these situations and you have no idea are you actually truly being considered for this job or you know they're just going through the motions because they have to be able to report back to the league that oh we did what you said we interviewed this black guy but you know here's the white guy we were going to hire the whole time I keep saying it's hard but there really is it's just it's really really frustrating and I refuse to believe as I wrote in in that column like I think it's 122 coaches since the Rooney rule was instituted and only 19 of them have been non-white head coaches and if you can look at me with a straight face and say, oh yeah, the, the 103 white guys were always the best guy for the job. Come on. Yeah. That's not, it's not even, that's not even 10%. And that's including Robert Sala and um, Ron Rivera. Right. It's only 17 black head coaches. Right. So, you know, (laughs) and if these guys are going to be token, you know, which obviously, that's the 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 heart of the the problem here part but like they're also preparing you know many of them like the enemy and Todd like they're also in the midst of the playoffs and they have to go some of them like bounce around and and do interviews with right you know I I guess this year maybe it's more zoom but in in past years and that's how you know and that's how you know the 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 game is rigged you know who I think it was Judy Batista Mm -hmm. the beautiful amazing Judy (laughs) Batista who proposed it last year to owners and said, why don't you have a hiring, um, you know, a start of the hiring season, like you do a start of free agency season. And one of the owners was like, Oh no, no, I can't see that. Well, why not? Because last year, you know, Todd Bowles and Byron Leftwich would have gotten interviews based on what they right. did in the AFC championship game and the Super Bowl. they would have gotten interviews. And yes, maybe that's one of the things that people are saying, well, Eric the enemy, he's been busy. He's been busy because he's really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Wouldn't she's saying have somebody. Yeah. So Wouldn't she's saying, wait till the end person? of the Super Bowl. Is that the idea? Wait till the end of the Super Bowl. Right. You can't wait. You can't wait. Uh, yes. I think Judy said the the Monday or Tuesday after the Super Bowl, then you can start doing the interviews and all that kind of stuff. Do I believe that they would, would stick to that if they agree to it? Probably not, but at least it feels, <laughs> this is where we are right now, it feels like it would be a little bit more equitable if you say you cannot conduct interviews until the Tuesday after the Super Bowl, because then it also opens up. I just, how would you not want somebody like Eric Bianami? How would you not want somebody like Todd Bowles, who was able to shut down Patrick Mahomes last year in the Super Bowl and do what he did over the last, you know, six or seven weeks of the regular season and into the playoffs with that defense. Why would you not want somebody like that? You know, and, and now we might hear the same thing this year with like Leslie Frazier. And I think as of right now, the enemy only has one interview on the book um, or one request. So the same thing might happen with Leslie Frazier. Well, his team was, was, was busy. No crap. You should want that person. Why would you want the offensive coordinator for a team that was eight and eight and nine and not the offensive coordinator for the team that was 13 and four and in in the ASC championship game or whatever the case may be? I I don't understand that. 
Right. Because he, well, he doesn't interview well, so. Um, of course. Yeah. Of course. But, and I also think, like, to your point about, I, I don't know, I'm wondering how you think if this would help or hurt the cause, because, you know, obviously you mentioned David Coley, you know, I think of Steve Wilkes having his one and done year in Arizona while that mm-hmm. organization was undergoing so, some changes. And I mean, even Urban Meyer, like that was a total disaster. So, you know, there's sort of a punishment, you know, to Judy's point about waiting I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it opens up the doors more for these successful coordinators, but there's also like, oh, if you fire your coach though, like you're going to be at a disadvantage when prepping for the senior bowl or, you know, everything else coming up on the calendar. So you better like really make sure this person is, is, is who you want. Like would that, I mean, do you think that would help or, or hurt where, where we're at with, with black head coaches? I don't I guess. I mean, people are always going to come up with reasons why, you know, that's, that's something that happens all the time. You know, it's, um, I was just listening to a podcast, um, Jamel Hill's most recent podcast, and she had on Brie Newsom Bass, and they were talking about respectability politics um, in the Black community. And it's something that for a lot of us, our grandparents sort of preach this idea that, well, if we dress well, you know, if you look at older pictures of, of black people that, you know, the men are in, in suits and ties and the women, even on like a Tuesday, they're going to the the store with, you know, a skirt and maybe the hat that, you know, is, looks nice and all that kind of stuff. And it was all, it was partly the idea that, well, if we look good, then the white man will treat us well. You know, that if we present ourselves a certain way, and I just, at the end of the day, some people are just always going to see a black person and they're going to respond the way that they normally would when they see a black person, whether they're a black person, you know, sleeping on the side of the street or a black person. I mean, LeBron James had the N-word spray painted on his front gate. And who is, like, LeBron James and Barack Obama are probably the two most well-known black people black Americans on the face of the planet right. and both of them still endure bigotry and racist yeah. hatred. So yeah. my point is you can put all the rules up. You can put standards up. You can say, well, what about this? It's always going to be, well, what about, you know, it's always mm-hmm. going to be, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about? And that's something that for a lot of us is reality. You know, it doesn't matter how many, stories I broke or how many awards I won or how many players really trusted me. It was still, Oh, she's just a black woman who's get being handed this job at the Boston globe. Okay. Sure. That's what it was, you know? And that's where I think some, for some black coaches, that's where things come in. It's like, well, am I getting this interview because I've earned it? Or am I getting this interview because they have to interview somebody? And so they just threw a dart and picked my name off the list. And here I am, you know, it's just, and then once you get that job, you have to be successful right away. And that still might not be good enough. You know, Jim Caldwell and, and Brian Flores, they were successful. They were building something. And, you know, Stephen Ross sided with his GM and Mm -hmm. I've had, you know, people say like early on after they fired Cully, well, they might interview Gerard Mayo might be the favorite or they might hire Flores. 
a one-to-one swap is not progress. We're looking for progress. Yeah. Yeah. You so, I, so I guess I'll, I'll actually, um, close this out with that question for you. Like what, what should we, what does progress look like for you? I don't know that I have a hard and fast answer to that because it's so complicated and it's so nuanced, you know, progress, you know, like I don't have a minimum number. It's not like I could say, Oh, if there's 10 black head coaches or 10 non-white head coaches, then I'll be happy. No, you know, because it's not to say that I don't think that there aren't very good white coaches. You know, I, I wrote something earlier in the season about Brandon Staley and how he seems to be, like a new guard kind of coach who sees his players as full human beings, you know, like this is kind of a new thing in the NFL. And, and even some people have floated the idea of, well, if there's black owners in the league, well, that's going to change things. Well, Shad Khan's an ethnic minority and that hasn't helped at all. Yeah. You know, not, there's a phrase, all skin folk ain't kin folk, you know, all not all black people are always looking out for other black people. Not all women are always looking out for other women. Unfortunately, that's part of it too. I want to see that these owners are not just, it just seems like it's, it's so easy for them to default. And again, it's part of who they have around them. It's, you know, look at, don't look at the coaching staff, look at the executive suite. And a lot of times they don't put pictures of who that is, you know, yeah. Arthur Blank caught heat. I think it was a little more than a year ago because Arthur Blank was like, oh, I love diversity. I love diversity and inclusivity. And then you go on the, the page of who the highest level people are within the Falcons organization. And it's like of 15 people, there were maybe a handful of women and one person of color. It's like, really? That's diversity and inclusivity to you? That's what it should look like? Yeah. You know, it's that's it, it's where it all starts. And there was, I just saw a clip from um, good morning football where Scott Pioli and Mike Robinson were leading a discussion that even, you know, another piece of the puzzle is how the game is presented. And these announcers, you know, Raheem Morris last night should have been shown like constantly, like look at the job Raheem Morris is doing, look at yeah. the job Raheem Morris is doing. So that way, fans who are watching because you know the nfl is not really regional anymore it's not um parochial it's it's a national everybody watches all the time because of fantasy and gambling and all that other kind of stuff so if you have a team that's looking for a head coach and you were watching last night and you saw multiple times oh look at raheem morris he's been phenomenal with the rams look at the job he did with atlanta last year then it, it kind of gets into your head like oh look at this guy and so if I'm just throwing it out there. The Bears say, oh, we're bringing yeah. Raheem Morris. Then it's in your head that, oh, yeah, I saw that guy last night. And he he coordinated that Rams defense that did that great thing against the, the Cardinals. And if they go on next week and, you know, it's probably the worst matchup for Tom Brady because Brady historically has struggled against really aggressive defensive lines. And his offensive right. line is like a patchwork right now. So <laughs> let's say that they're able to beat the Buccaneers and really beat up Tom Brady. Well, you know all of these things work in Raheem Morris's favor. If the game is presented in such a way that you're really shining a light on Raheem Morris and be like, look at what this guy did, you know, as a, and we see it a lot with like Josh McDaniels. If you watch a, a Patriots game, it's always oh, like, yeah. you everybody know, knows Josh it's like, McDaniels. Look what Josh McDaniels mm-hmm. is doing. Right. Every, he's probably one of the most well-known coordinators in the league totally. because look at what Josh McDaniels did. Well, let's shine the same light on the minority coordinators. 
you know, at the end of the day, it's just a chance. And if a black coach is hired and the black coach really sucks and you fire him, fine. But Freddie Kitchens got a chance to be a head coach. Adam Gates got two chances to be a head coach. So don't tell me that there aren't black coaches who should get a shot and maybe they fumble. Maybe they do because they're human just like everybody else. And you don't know what it is to be a head coach until you get a chance to be a head coach. It's like being a parent, right? We don't know. We can hear stories about what it's like to be a parent, but you don't know how hard it is to be a parent or what it really all involves until you become a parent. So you can learn how to be a head coach or, or talk to you know the head coach that you work for, but until you are in it, you don't know what it's like. And so some guys stumble and fumble, and if you give them time, maybe they find their stride. And if you give them a third or fourth season and they still stink, well, then fire them. But they're not even getting the chances to screw up in so many cases. You know, you might find a hidden gem and you might find a screw up. But if Eric the enemy gets a chance in four years from now, we find out, oh, he was, you know, he's like North Turner, great coordinator, not so great as a head coach. Well, then at least he got the chance. But he's not even getting that. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Well said. Um, well said. I, I appreciate you. Just get all the all the insight. I'm sorry. I feel like I, I'm, everything was like stoking you there. But I mean, this is just very important stuff for for everybody to kind of think about as we're going through this this coaching cycle. So thank you so much for. It is, it all, is important. It, it, it really is yeah. important, and and I'm glad that you're making time for it. And hopefully, if we ever discuss it again, it's that it looks like there was progress made. But you know, progress also has to be consistent and sustained. Thanks again to Shalise Manza-Young of Yahoo Sports. You can follow her on Twitter at Shalise M. Young. That's S-H-A-L-I-S-E-M Young. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Football Girl Podcast. I implore all of you, I humbly ask all of you who have not yet to please head to iTunes and leave the Football Girl podcast a great rating and review. And thank you so much to to everyone who listened, um, especially the first timers. Hope you'll be back. We will be back next week talking NFC and AFC championships. Final four.